So our reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, and we're reading verses 1 to 12. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thank you, Liz. Well, today we're starting a series called True North uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. So that's Matthew chapters 5 to 7. You can read the whole Sermon on the Mount in like 10 minutes, which I encourage you to do from time to time. Uh, but many of the passages run deep, which is why this series will span the, the whole term. And so as we begin, however, I want to just say a few things about how to read the Sermon on the Mount. So with the Sermon on the Mount, some will find what Jesus said here to be very black and white or lacking nuance. The bar set for how we live as disciples is really high, so much so, so, much so that some will look and say, well, that's impossible. And I think if you separate the Sermon on the Mount from the gospel, it becomes either frustrating idealism or legalism, and I don't want to promote either. See, our understanding of the gospel means that we are completely forgiven through Christ, and we live out our Christian life with the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The gospel doesn't set aside God's holiness or his desire for how we should live, but it empowers us to live in a way that is radically different and better than the world around us, okay? And so what we see in the Sermon on the Mount is it kind of sets our goal, it sets our course. G.K. Chesterton said it this way about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, On first reading, you feel it turns everything upside down. On second reading, you find it turns everything right side up. The first time you read it, you feel that it is impossible. The second time, you feel that nothing else is possible. You see, what Jesus teaches here is hard but right. We will all in different ways fall short of what we find in the Sermon on the Mount. None of us is perfect. But it gives, again, it gives us a clear direction of travel. That's why we've titled the series True North. 
And what we can bring, what we find there, we can bring to God in repentance and depend on the Holy Spirit that we might bring heaven to earth. Okay? And so let's, let's jump into this. So Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. It's also a key thing that comes out that I need to want to say early on about the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, really. Like, is Jesus teaching the disciples or the crowds? And what you'll find, you know, so for example, right here, verse 2, he began to teach them. Who's the them? Right? We've, we've had, right, already mentioned the crowds in verse 1 and the disciples. And we find as well that Matthew, there's times where there, there are things clearly directed at the disciples, and that at the end, though, we find, end of Matthew 7, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And the, so when you ask the question, well, is this directed at the disciples or at the crowds? It's like the answer is yes. <laughs> and depending on which one you're emphasizing can really affect how you read it, and yet you need to hold them both in tension. And there's, um, I want to recommend a few books for those that want to go deeper, because it, and it also highlights this tension. The first is The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard, and the second is The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer focuses on the disciples more, Dallas Willard folk gives some more focus to the crowd, and I think both are right, okay? Um, now this morning, I'm just going to take us into the Beatitudes, and if I were to actually take us into each of the eight Beatitudes, it would make for a very long sermon, so I won't do that. Um, but instead, I will give us some, some points that summarize what we find here and show a progression that we see in these verses, okay? And so, um, but let me begin by just pointing out something. Um, verse 3 and verse 10 both have a similar phrase, and it's a phrase that's used to start the, with the first beatitude and with the last beatitude. And the phrase is this, and it's very key to the Sermon on the Mount. The phrase is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A driving force in this passage and beyond is what does life look like when properly informed by the kingdom of heaven? What does that mean for us? And especially as God's people, we are meant to be bringing heaven to earth. But we're also looking forward, of course, to what's coming. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, I want to start with by using an illustration from some, some, something that Mark Buchanan wrote. I've used this before, but it fits too perfectly here. So if you recognize it, there you go. But um, he was at a wedding once, and he met a young philosophy student that came up to him. And the philosophy student said this, I tried your religion for a while, and I found it's just a burden to carry. You know what I've figured out? Life justifies living. Life is its own reward and explanation. I don't need some pie-in-the-sky mirage to keep me going. This life has enough pleasure and mystery and adventure in it not to need anything else to account for it. Life justifies living, right? And Mark, with a pastor's heart, responded by saying, you know what? Like they're at a wedding, right? You know what? I believe you. Today, here, I believe you. But what about Richard, who is 44 and is dying of AIDS? Or Ernie, who, though with four great kids and a wife, has been diagnosed with MS? Yes, I'm thinking about Richard and Ernie, and I have a question about your philosophy. 
How exactly do I explain to them that life justifies living? And Mark writes this. He said he'd have to think about it a while and, and write me when he came up with something. I never heard from him because life does not justify living. Eternity does. And so in holding in this, even in the Beatitudes, but in the Sermon on the Mount, there's this tension that for many people, this world is not enough. This world in many ways is uncomfortable. This world is painful. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now in the Beatitudes, there's some progression here that I want to take us into. And so what I'm going to think about is I want to think with you about how Jesus speaks to people in their current distress. Then it take, goes up a notch to our character as people of heaven on earth. And then the cost of radical living. Okay, so check this out. Jesus speaks to people in their current distress. Let me read again verses 3 to 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, actually, hold on. Let me just mention something that I think will help here. Dallas Willard talks about how he, he imagines the situation here, and I think he does this rightly, where Jesus, he's just been healing people. And there's people that are flocking to him to be healed. And there's always, there's always more people than, that need to be healed that can possibly be healed, right? Like people are flocking to Jesus. And into this situation, Jesus then starts speaking here to people. He's probably like walking through the crowd, going, referring to actual people. Putting his finger on deep needs that actual people have. Like when he said, blessed are those who mourn, he might very well be referring to someone that's there in sackcloth and ashes. Right? So let me read verses 3 to 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, um, something you'll notice in the Beatitudes is this word blessed gets used loads and loads, right? And it sounds, I don't know about you, but it sounds to me like such a middle-class American word, like blessed, right? Blessed or blessed, like, you know, hashtag blessed, um, just off to get my hair done while sipping a mocha frappuccino half-calf in my new outfit. Here's a picture with my food, my family, and my pets. So blessed. You know what I mean, Right? Some translations, um, makarios in Greek, try to tra translate this in different ways. Some translate it as happy. That's, that's a poor word, really, for what's, what's here with blessed. Uh, it's, it's not about how we feel, but about how God feels about us and our circumstances. Some suggest fortunate would be a good translation, or approved, or God smiles on you, or in sync with God, God and his kingdom, Right? I mean, I think blessed is a good word, but we need to be aware, really, of what it means, because we can miss that. And so what's striking here is how blessed is put together with things that don't feel like a blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Like, how is that a position of being blessed by God? Of course, we have to get the second half of those verses because theirs is the kingdom, because they will be comforted, because they will inherit the earth. 
And so what is unbearably hard in this life is transformed by an awareness of heaven. And as I say, Jesus is looking at people for whom this world doesn't, doesn't fit, for whom this life is so difficult. It's like he's saying, blessed are the outcasts. Blessed are the broken. Blessed are those that have great need. Now, here's the thing. I think if Jesus were here today, he would probably, he could very well walk up to any of us identify our deepest needs and go, blessed are those that feel unloved. Blessed are those that feel like they have no place. Blessed are those that feel like they're always overlooked. Blessed are those. He could look at any, any of us and he could see our deepest need. He'd probably speak right to it and some of our most profound needs. And I want to just try something for a moment because I think this is a God thing. I just want to give us a moment, just to, some silence, where we can let the Holy Spirit just, where we can just prayerfully bring before God what that deepest need might be, and just hear from the Spirit of God, what would Jesus say to you? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What would he say to you? Let's just have a moment just of silence and just let the Spirit of God work. Jesus speaks directly into great need, and he brings an awareness of the kingdom of heaven right into that need. Because the kingdom of heaven, breaking into this world, but also ultimately fulfilled when we, when we leave this world, transforms what we experience now. And then what Jesus does is he takes in these verses, he takes things up a level by considering our character as a people that are, our character as a, as a people of heaven on earth, as a people that bring heaven to earth. And so we, we check this out. Let me read verses six to nine. And the character traits here, are, are they, again, they run deep. They're significant. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So there's an interesting thing here. He's very well, quite possibly, moved from focusing on the crowds to focusing on the disciples. But he is sort of defining radical discipleship. And all of these continue to be profound categories. Like, how do you know that you're pure in heart? When have you actually arrived? I don't know that anyone does, Right? But there's a tension between what this world is like and what God wants that we should feel in our bones and should cause us to be uncomfortable with this world. 
See, these character traits are not natural human qualities. We become these things as the kingdom breaks in, and then it's a powerful witness in this world as we live differently. I love a great example of, of these, one of these traits being lived out um, is just thinking about Gandhi, right? And some people debate over whether they think Gandhi was a Christian or not, but a friend of his, E. Stanley Jones, speaking about Gandhi, said this. A little man in a loincloth in India picks out of the Sermon on the Mount one of its central principles, applies it as a method for gaining human freedom. The world, challenged and charmed, bends over to watch the significance of the great sight. It is a portent of what would happen if we would take the whole of the Sermon on the Mount and apply it to the whole of life. It would renew our Christianity, and it would renew the world. He goes on to say later, he says this, Our present-day Christianity, anemic and weak from the parasites that have fastened itself on its life from the centuries, need a blood transfusion from the Sermon on the Mount in order to renew radiant health with it, that it may throw off those parasites, arise and to serve and save the world. And so the picture becomes that what happens is that we as the people of God, being infused with an awareness of heaven, mean that we live differently in this world, that we're able to live radical lives for God. And the, that builds here then to verse 10, where we get blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, the, and Jesus speaks then as well a bit more just to the disciples in verse 11. Blessed are you, like working out what's in verse 10. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Again, notice that things, these things don't line up. If you get insulted, you don't generally want to rejoice, right? But there's an awareness of heaven because great is your reward in heaven. Um, in the, um, in the fence, fifth century, there was a monk named Telemachus who felt like he should return to Rome to better serve God. And at time, Christianity was growing massively. It had become the religion of the Roman Empire. But many people didn't have a genuine faith. And something he found in Rome that was incredibly disturbing for him was the, um, the gladiator games. And so he was really disturbed about this. And so he's just arrived in Rome, and he goes there and... You know, whereas things had changed in that their Christians were no longer being thrown to the lions, but prisoners of war were being cast into the arena to fight and kill each other. And so he arrives, he's shocked. There's something like 80,000 people there. And in the middle of all of this, Telemachus jumps into the arena to stand in, in between the two gladiators and beg them to stop. Now, many of you will know the story. Uh, Telemachus was celebrated, and everybody cheered, and everything stopped, and they all became peaceful, happy, loving people. Right? No, that's not the story. Telemachus was stoned to death. The rest of the day was canceled because of what had happened. 
And three days later, the Roman emperor declared Telemachus a martyr and ended the practice of the gladiator games. Historian Edward Gibbon said it this way, his death was more useful to mankind than his life. And here's the thing. I believe if we could hear from Telemachus today, I believe that he would say it was worth it. Not because of the lives that were saved, although that might be a good reason. I believe he would say it was worth it because he is in heaven and his reward is great. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For all of us, we live in a world that isn't perfect, that isn't right. There's lots of ways it's influenced us and affected us. We all have deep needs, things we wouldn't want to tell anybody else about. And yet, there's a beautiful thing in that the kingdom of heaven is able to infuse and impact and transform how we see our own difficulties. But it also calls us to live differently in this world and to have a character that speaks of another world as we bring heaven to earth as God's people, regardless of the cost. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us with this. I pray that you would um, increase our faith, that you'd raise our awareness of what is coming that you would um, kind of transform how we might even see situations or even long-standing things that we wrestle with within ourselves. Father, that you would change our hearts as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.